Hello everyone and welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar in partnership with BSI. Very much looking forward to a fascinating conversation for the next hour. Bear with us for just a couple of seconds while our participants filter in. We had well over a thousand registrants for this webinar and we usually get a third to a half showing up and then a lot more downloading the audio afterwards. And just as a reminder, if you can't catch all of this live, you can subscribe to the Innovation Forum podcast channel, go on our website, get our newsletter by signing up, and you will be sent a link to this um, anyhow. But if you want to pass it on to others or, or suggest to others that they listen to this, there are a number of ways you can do that through our podcast channel website and so on. So this will be available um, for an unlimited time afterwards for anyone to listen to. So we're looking forward to a, a fascinating discussion. I can see the numbers are ticking up towards 300. So while uh, we're waiting for the last few folks to, to join us at the beginning of this, I'll just uh, introduce myself. Uh, my name is Toby Webb. I'm the founder of Innovation Forum, um, working with my brilliant team in London. So thanks so much to, to B. Stevenson and to Tanya Richard for doing a fantastic job of organizing this in conjunction with BSI. And as many of you will know, at Innovation Forum, we like to convene interesting debates about important areas in sustainability. And we have a big focus on food, agriculture, forestry, plastics, uh, human rights issues, and, and generally sustainable sourcing is issues across the board. And it's become very clear that soil carbon um, and uh, supply chain carbon measurement is incredibly important, not least because of scope three commitments and the Paris Agreement and the recent COP26, but also because um, we need desperately to find ways to incentivize farmers uh, to do uh, a more optimal job on, on soil management to everybody's benefit. Um, and so there are lots of drivers for this, and I, I think you're all here because you understand them. So I won't go through them in detail. The plan for this webinar is we're going to discuss this complex and difficult topic um, in as enlightened a way as we can. And you can join in the conversation as well, uh, not face to face, I'm afraid, because there's just too many people. But you can use the Q&A function that you see at the bottom right hand side of your navigation on Zoom. Uh, not the chat function, the Q&A function, uh, and I would attempt to bring your point to our panel. If you write a very long essay in a very small font, um, <laughs> which is what Zoom gives me, I will struggle to read it all out. So if you could keep your question concise and to the point and constructive, there's much more chance that I will be able to use it. Um, we all appreciate a good rant, but there's a time and a place, and this is not that time or place. So let's keep it focused. Um, what we're going to do with the panel is simply have some brief opening remarks from each of them on this challenging but incredibly important topic. And I'll try and ask them a couple of semi-sensible questions uh, based on what they say. Um, and then they might want to ask each other some questions uh, or make some points. And then we'll throw it open to you guys quite quickly for Q&A until we finish in about 57 minutes time. So that's the plan. I'm going to ask each of our speakers to do very brief self-introductions when we start. And so we're going to start uh, with Per Edera, who's the Program and Science Director for the Global Food and Agribusiness Network. So, Per, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we thought we'd ask you to, to kick us off really with a few opening remarks, perhaps looking at where we are in current practices um, and uh, any other points you want to raise on this important topic as a first intervention. So, Per, thanks for joining us um, and over to you for some opening comments. Oh, and you are on mute. Yep, yep. Thank you very much, Toby. And uh, as you said, uh, uh, there's 
there's barely a more important topic than uh, soil soil health and uh, soil carbon and 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 I, my, my very first point is exactly that. When we talk about soil carbon, we should really make a, a, a very strong connection to soil health. And if you think about it, there is uh, barely a more important topic around the world these days than, than that. And uh, it's fantastic that we can have this event here. I'm a member of the Scientific Council of the World Farmers Organization. Uh, by original training, I'm a financial economist. Uh, but I have evolved over the years to become an expert and a scientist in dynamics of the global food system. And, and this is the reason why I'm here. When we're talking about soil carbon, I want to uh, kind of maybe uh, as, as an opener here, structure this or, or, or make three different proposals of, of how to think about this or where, where is the challenges that we need to consider. So I'll, I'll do this in one, two, three. So the, the very first one is, I think we all need to be aware and, 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 and retain some humility here that, that there is still a lot of unknowns. Um, and and uh, to put it in a, frame, a famous phrase, there is even unknown unknowns. And so we, we need to be, uh, as we go forward, we need to make sure that we continue to do scientific inquiry, that we do experimentation, that we gather data uh, in order to understand better what is going on in these soils. Uh, to, if, if you go like a, a few meters down the soil into the grounds of the soils, we know less about what's going on there than we know on the surface of the moon. Uh, it, it is really, truly terra incognita. And, and then we also have related to that, we have kind of an a lack of imagination among uh, professionals and, and farmers even uh, about what is actually happening in the soil. I just want to kind of point out one little small example. Uh, so if you, if you take a, a, a tiny piece of soil, you know, just one gram, just one gram of soil, um, in this one gram of soil, uh, you will find 5.5 million algae organisms, 5.5 million individual organisms of algaes in just one gram of soil. And, and this is not just one particular type. These are, there's a vast zoo of different types of organisms. And we really, really do not yet understand what they all do with each other, how they all interact with each other. We barely know their names. We, we barely know their biology. So when, when we talk about soil carbon, this is, this is not about our, our worms and snails, it's, it's about them too, but it's, there is a vast universe of biology that we really need to understand better. Um, so that, that was my, my first point when, when we talk about uh, soil carbon. Now, my, my second point that I want to make here is that we are, dealing with a, a, a broad range of challenges of what are we measuring and how are we defining what we are measuring. And, and so uh, there, there's all these terms being uh, already running around of soil carbon content and soil organic man, uh, content and the CO2 equivalents of that and this and so on and so forth. And, 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 and there's a, so, so when people say, oh, we're sequestering carbon, 
uh, it's it's basically almost the equivalent of saying, well, I'm I'm uh, burning I'm I'm uh, burning fossil fuel. So uh, what does that mean? Uh, there's there's from from anything from uh, burning a candle to running a, um, a coal-fired power station, all of these are burning fossil fuels. And the same applies when we look at the soil. When we say we're sequestering carbon, we, we're really talking about practices that are as widely different from burning a candle all the way up to running a, a coal-fired power station. So, so it is incredibly important that we, that we get a grip on better definitions of what are we actually doing here? What are we defining here? What are we describing here? Um, the, one of my favorite, uh, favorite hatred term, hated terms is the KISS principle, keep it simple and stupid. Um, I don't know if, if it ever has an application anywhere, but certainly when we talk about agriculture and soils, it does not apply. Why? Because we're dealing with biology. Biology is just simply not simple. All right. So we need to make sure that we that we appreciate the complexity that we're dealing with, and therefore we need to also address its the, that. Which then really, and I'll make that the third point very quickly. Um, uh, we we urgently need. Um, some way of defining standards and, and defining methods and defining uh, defining approaches here, so that so that we uh, uh, sort of put a path through this jungle. As long as we everybody does everything by their own notions, we we just never get to comparability. We just never get to to definitions being congruent with each other or being one category being expressible in another category and so on. And defining such standards is, is critical to be done in a, in, a, in a intelligent way so that those standards do not stop scientific inquiry and knowledge discovery, but on the contrary, they promote scientific inquiry and knowledge discovery so that we understand more on what's going on and that we can facilitate investment in these sectors and, and get smarter about what we're doing. So, so um, yeah, I, I just want to kind of start kicking off this discussion with those three things. We, we have tremendous amount of unknowns there. We, we, are, we are already using way too many terms and methods and approaches without defining properly what they are, secondly, and thirdly, we are in urgent need of some definitions of on, on standards, on processes, and and terms, and and how to how to go ahead with this topic. Otherwise, we'll, we will drown ourselves in in an enormous chaos. Thank you, Pat. So, is it your view then that if we take all this complexity into account, and there's a, an awful lot of it which you've described very eloquently, if we're able to do that, then is a standardized approach possible? I guess what you're saying is, yes, but it's going to take quite a long time. We've got a lot to do first. No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that standardized approaches are impossible. What I'm calling for is intelligent standards that, that also evolve with time and as, as that are evolvable, you know, that, that, that make it possible to facilitate things. Standards can be terrible if they're the wrong kind of standards and then they shut down all kind of innovation and so. So, so the challenge is not, is it possible or impossible? The challenge is to do it in, in an intelligent and correct way that, 
that facilitates uh, uh, investment and uh, and practices. Thanks very much. I'm going to come back to you a bit later and ask you specifically for some organizations or initiatives that you know of that are helping move this debate forward in that direction. So I'll give you a bit of time to think about that because we like to be practical on these webinars. Uh, David, let me turn to you, David Thatcher from BSI. First of all, just give us the two lines on BSI. Thanks very much also for your support of this. Uh, we are hoping in partnership with BSI that this will be the beginning of a process where we at Innovation Forum and BSI start to contribute to something more substantive than just a fascinating 60-minute webinar, which no doubt this is and will be, but there's a lot more work to be done and we feel like in our convening role, we can play uh, some small part there with BSI. So thank you for your support, David. But for those not familiar with uh, BSI, just tell us a bit of two lines about it and then very keen to hear your views on this topic. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Toby. And thanks again to Innovation Forum for inviting us to this and, and, and your kind words in terms of our support of Innovation Forum's uh, ambitions in this space. Um, yeah, and BSI Group is a global business services company. So some people will be familiar with who we are based on the fact we provide assurance solutions and training against, uh, against standards. But it all comes back to the standard. And I actually work for the part of BSI, which is the UK National Standards Body. So it's a, 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 a UK member of ISO, the International standards organization, the UK member of other standards bodies, be they regional or international. But um, I'll make reference to BSI in that role later on and, and the connection with ISO. Um, and actually, I think just picking up on what um, Per just said as well, I mean, part of my role is to promote the uh, ESG um, standards that we have published, but through engaging with stakeholders like yourselves, but also those on this, on this webinar, understanding where there are gaps in the, the sort of knowledge landscape where new standards are needed. Arguably, this is one. And, and actually just picking up on something that Pear said by way of a segue into what I wanted to talk about in five minutes. Um, Pear's quite right in the fact, in the sense that sometimes standards can be, we would say wrongly regarded as stifling innovation because perhaps they're the wrong standard at the wrong time. Um, sometimes you need un uniformity because everyone has the same shaped ATM card, otherwise they won't work. Other times you need to have you know, innovation that kind of flourishes and therefore that seems to go against the idea of standardizing something like an ATM card. What we'd say is there's actually room for standards in both. You know, there's that functional ATM card need for a standard, but there's also a need for terminology which allows uh, a sector to actually gather around a consistent you know, vocabulary and therefore grow with a degree of confidence and, and certainty and build trust into the conversations and supply chains can kind of be fostered through that shared understanding. So really that's what I wanted to say in I guess what's now four minutes. Um, just really you know, um, make the point that standards um, can play a huge part here I think in uh, supporting the uh, introduction of greater integrity in soil carbon measurement. Uh, and why it's important that the model that underpins the standards that, that I'm here to talk about is really part of that credibility in terms of the output. By standards uh, at BSI and within ISO more generally, we're talking about a broad umbrella term, which uh, you might find um, listed terminologies, as I've mentioned before, guidelines, codes, principles, but also more technical specifications such as measurement methodologies, test protocols. Um, as representative of uh, the UK National Standards Body, a founder member of ISO, in fact, we term all of those as standards, not just the ones that come with a, with a, with a badge at the end of them. All of those come under the, the, the umbrella term of standards. And we consider standards at BSI as trusted knowledge. 
in that the, the governance model we champion um, requires us to convene industry stakeholders, policy owners in government, regulators where applicable, academics, hugely important in this area in particular, societal stakeholders, which might be in this context NGOs, um, but also, so therefore it's our role to act as that convener, much like yourself, Toby, uh, and manage the necessary consensus building that's required, including public consultation, and then distill all of that wisdom in the room into, into credible best practice, capturing what good looks like, um, and that's then published, and picking up on what um, Pear said as well, it's published, but then subject to a, a managed systematic review process. So therefore we know the science will keep evolving. So therefore we don't say, this is a standard for 10 years time. We actually put it under a periodic review process. That's really important as well. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out was that um, in a way our, our role as a standards body is not to maybe be the subject matter expert on all these topics, it's our role to convene those that are. And it's those experts that are best placed to, to determine the shape of the solution. And by that, I mean, if those experts we've convened say, this particular industry right now needs greater clarity in terms of agreed definitions, then we can take their knowledge and turn that into definitions. If those that same experts say, actually, we're pretty much working towards the same definitions, what we need now are processes and practices and test methods that maybe have some kind of auditable component to them so that those organizations that are behaving and following those kind of methods can actually receive some certification then we can turn that same knowledge into something that actually meets with the needs of the market as as re reflected back to us by those we've we've brought in together um, so that's really the, the, the model that underpins the, the standards and that's i think where we would say it bakes that kind of credibility into it. The standards we're talking about here are voluntary, not to be confused with mandatory legal requirements, um, but they can be used by governments to uh, either support existing reg regulation, cited as a, a means of compliance, but also they can be used to lay down the necessary consensus-based guardrails where there is no regulation. Um, there's already quite a lot of standardization in terms of greenhouse gas emissions management, um, much of that is actually um, international in ISO, but it's been generated initially by BSI, things like carbon footprinting at an organizational level, project and product level. There's also some new work in ISO published last year, um, I'm going to read this out, for determining the organic carbon and nitrogen stocks and their variations in mineral soils at field scale. But arguably, arguably what we're seeing, and this is what's prompted this, um, this, this session, I think, is schemes at a national, regional, international level based on codes that have been designed by different groups coming together around a common objective, that's great, but which may not be able to evidence such a robust process underpinning the development of the central quantification method that they're all working to. All of these different definitions, and this is exactly what Pear was saying, all these different definitions and measurement techniques without some shared DNA of maybe overarching principles, therefore risks a loss of confidence in how the demand and supply sides of that market interact, interact. So I think the convening model at BSI Champions ensures open participation and that collaboration and consensus can accelerate innovation, fostering a culture of confidence in science-based outcomes. We actually, in conclusion really, we've, we've been here before in many areas, but one I wanted to cite was 10 years ago, there was some reluctance on the part of aspiring smart cities to partner with tech providers for fear of vendor lock-in. What BSI helped create there by establishing a community of practice was a suite of standards 
which capture common frameworks, metrics, principles, maturity models. Those BSI standards were then piloted globally, later informed work at ISO, so helping cities better understand via the application of consistent terminology, the right conditions for digital service transformation, which then help reduce barriers to system integration. You may not think that's quite the right parallel example to use, but I'd say that the underlying kind of point I'm trying to make hopefully still holds for soil carbon. So I think given the similarly complex network of operators at play uh, in this space, I'll suggest a comparable approach is needed. BSI is well placed as an independent impartial party to act as a convener, working within an innovation forum in that context, um, and we can shape the solutions. It mirrors a new role, in fact, we have as a member of the Executive Secretariat of the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets. There we've been tasked with facilitating the work of the expert panel in developing the core carbon principles and assessment framework necessary. Um, finally then, it, Michael Bloomberg observed a couple of years back in his role as chair of the Financial Stability Board's Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. Increasing transparency makes markets more efficient and economies more stable and resilient, to which I might add, without open consensus-based standards of good practice, there can be no transparency and no trust. Thank you, David. Quick question for you before we move on. There's clearly a lot going on on regional national levels. Um, a note here in the chat from Ellen Fay at the Sustainable Soils Alliance talking about the work being they're doing in the UK. So there's clearly a lot happening on national basis. Are you suggesting that there hasn't been this more globally minded attempt to join things up as yet? Have you seen other examples of this and is there anything we can learn from them? I, I'm aware of other examples, such as the one you mentioned, where groups have come together. Um, but I think what we're maybe saying is in order to sort of bake in that confidence, there may need to be a kind of an overarching principles approach. I guess that could start at the national level, um, you know, and then it could go, go global. But I think that's what I'd say. I, I'm not seeing anything. I'm aware of different schemes that operate um, from conversations I've had in, you know, in the US, for example. But but I think maybe what there's been is, is perhaps it could be there's a, a somewhat dysfunctional market because of the absence of maybe global principles that can be therefore used to, to inform the way in which existing codes and schemes operate, but therefore future ones, because they're, they're bound to be future ones. And I'm not a soil expert, I made that point beforehand, but one imagines there will be a need for um, you know, certain types of uh, codes that reflect certain types of soil conditions globally, which are unique to a certain region. And that's fine, and that makes sense. But I would think, again, if we can have some overarching principles of how all these different codes can be developed, then that, um, in a way, ensures more credibility of how they then um, become more mainstream within their own particular domain. I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Yes, and I can certainly see that companies with a global footprint, which many have, would find that enormously beneficial to help direct traffic in some way and get us towards a more consistent approach when we look at disparate supply chains. Fully noting, of course, your your good point that soil types change all the time. I've been in uh, I've been in vineyards where you turn left and it's red clay, and you turn right and it's sort of mineral limestone. Um, you know, and it, it's very very different in, in short spaces of time. So we have to bear that in mind as you as you mentioned. Sophie, let me turn to you. You've been listening intently to all of this. Um, what does all this mean to you? 
so thank you very much. And yes, I have been listening intently and writing as well. So um, my name is Sophie Throop. I uh, work for uh, Morrison's. It's a UK-based retailer, um, fourth biggest retailer in the UK. But um, rather unusually, we're also food manufacturers um, and we have about 20 manufacturing sites around the country and we make about therefore about um, just over half of the fresh food we sell ourselves and we make ourselves um, and we're also buying directly from nearly 3,000 farmers and so have a very close link into uh, the farm population who after all are the guardians of custodians of developers of the soil and the soil carbons that we're talking about with uh, about today so so for me you know um, and Doing the work I do, and I'll come on to that in, in a moment. Um, a standardised approach is is not just um, desirable, but is absolutely necessary. Um, my role at Morrison's, I look after agriculture, fisheries, and sustainable sourcing. And you know, as a as a retailer, we are obviously very customer led. We're very mindful about what customers are wanting us to do their worries for them, where they're wanting us to do their worries for them in all sorts of different topics within this whole sort of um, ESG space. But increasingly, this is around an environmental agenda. Um, but obviously, when we're talking about matters like this, you know, we have to as well not only think about what customers are asking us about now, but also what they may be asking us about in the future, because change takes a long time to take effect in many agricultural systems. Systems. You know, we can't just switch it on and, uh, and change a recipe and, you know, bish bash bosh, it's, it's different. So we need to think about, um, we need to think about the lead in times. And so um, we uh, at Morrison's have a set of very um, ambitious goal to uh, work with our um, directly supplying farmers in our UK agricultural supply chain to get to a net zero collective position by 2030. So that is very ambitious and we know that. Um, we chose such a, a, a sort of a tight timescale because we wanted to be able to help catalyze activity and think about how in a period of time, which is certainly in our watch, how can we work with um, farm and farmers that are supplying us, but really importantly, with lots of academic in, um, innovators and, uh, and entrepreneurs to try and make a difference um, in this space. And it is about a combination of measuring, but innovating, and then also implementing different approaches. And so obviously, whenever you want to measure and innovate and implement, you've got to think about what are the standards, what are the metrics that you're going to be using to try and think about what good looks like. And so I think there are two for me, for us, really two main reasons why standardised approaches is really help is really useful and really necessary. So firstly, it's about that and the word consistency has come up. It's about that consistency of approach and language and um, uh, an understanding. And when we're working with the various different suppliers um, in our farm uh, supply chain, uh, obviously they have so many different elements of advice um, and so many different sort of claims that are made on the soil, car soil carbons that already exist on their farm. It can get very, very confusing. Ultimately as well, how do you really understand what good looks like if there's a difference about approach from, the, from, that, from that initial baseline? And so having a standardised approach is therefore really helpful to be able to sort of have that constant, um, consistency of understanding and then also planning about how to go and move forward, how to benchmark and how to take things on to the further to the next steps. But also, um, if uh, you know, we had uh, right at the very start, you know, soil carbons is also about soil health. 
off. And so I think sometimes there's a consistency required that understands and can translate into farm economics. So, you know, uh, improved soil carbons, improved soil health is going to um, have a direct benefit, we hope, on uh, on the productivity and profitability of a farm, and certainly about you know how potentially they can have reduced other inputs um, by managing soils in a in a potentially more regenerative way. And so I think that's uh, that understanding and how standards can then be used to help apply a, a sort of a, a more close um, picture on farm economics is is, a, is very useful and will help in that behaviour change. But obviously, one of the economic um, elements that was mentioned at the start of the call, and which um, everybody I think is keeping a very uh, a watching eye on, is the emerging carbon market. And if soil carbons are to become a tradable asset, then how, yes, are we assuring like with like, but also assuring that robustness of the approach um, and to under understand when you're buying from complex supply chains that there really um, is uh, a, a robust um, methodology behind what has been calculated on farms. I think that's a really important element to get right. Um, so for, uh, it was mentioned too, I think it was a really interesting point I was going to reflect on too, was about standards. So sometimes standards can lead to a yes, no, pass, fail um, adoption, whereas actually I think it is really important in this when we, as you say, don't know everything we know at the moment and we need to be able to help keep encouraging the need to innovate to improve that we have standards that can also be flexible in adapting and rewarding good practice it isn't just yes tick box done that standard move on it's about how can we think about that standard and where we go next and where we can plan further improvements and and then consider an intelligent way to reward those improvements too but I think um, I think there's so many different uh, um, areas to explore, and it is absolutely right to work with the right experts. I mean, you know, we're sort of part of a and work with the Sustainable Soils Alliance. You know, are, are watching about the UK uh, emergence of the UK Soil Carbon Code, um, but also working with sort of different experts. And I've already had you know lots of different people tell me lots of different answers about soil carbons, and particularly their permanence in certain systems too. I think there's been quite a lot that's been discussed in soils to date in arable and rotational cropping systems, but there's also a potential for soil carbons within pasture-based systems too. And I think it's really fascinating. I've had some uh, experts say, well, it only gets to a 20-year gap and then that's it. You can't sequester anything else after 20 years. But then I also look at the research that AFBE, so the AFBE Institute has done in Northern Ireland, and they've done a 50-year soil carbon stocks analysis where they're sort of saying that soils across, I'm just reading from their excerpt, soils across all experimental treatments do not seem to have reached a carbon saturation level yet. And that's after 50 years. So I think in this emerging space, it is really important to retain flexibility in approach. However, absolutely essential that there are some rules of the game um, uh, brought in to help govern, direct and improve um, a consistent understanding. Thanks very much Sophie. Um, lots lots to unpack there. Um, if you could send us the link to that 50-year carbon study in some way, if there's a link we can share um, with the webinar, because um, I think people will be interested in reading that. That's fascinating. Um, what do farmers say when you go and talk to them about this? I mean, we've we've done lots of conferences and webinars on this, and you know there is a big debate about who gets to own what, and is everyone going to be vying for my carbon, and why don't I get to sell it? You know, who gets to account for it? But I mean, before we get there, because we're not quite there yet, I think, what's the conversation you're you're having with them? Because they're going to be on the front line of this, whether that's allowing satellite measurement or employing sensors, you know, just. Curious to get a level of an interest, an insight into the level of understanding more. 
Yeah, sure. So one of the reasons we wanted to really make uh, Net Zero Agriculture one of our flagship sustainability programmes at Morrison's is because we also recognise that farmers were already doing a lot, but weren't necessarily being heard in terms of the work that they had done and wanted to do more of. And uh, that for us, you know, being able to help accelerate that good and changing practice was really important and to be able to help tell that story with, um, with our customer supply base as well. And so I have to say the conversations that we've had to date with farms have been really positive. However, there is that feedback that says, well, it would just be really helpful to understand, you know, what's the, what do I do next? What are the so what's, you know, I've heard this from so-and-so and I've heard that from somebody else. What does it all mean? And so for us, you know, we um, are conveners of, of expert opinions, opposed to being experts ourselves. But, you know, one of the bits I would, I, we, we encourage all farmers to say is actually there's still, regardless what the measurement says, there's still work that we can do now, which means it is constantly making improvements. Don't stop that until the perfect is known because it may never be, may never be known or indeed it might take a long time to develop. But, uh, but please, you know, let's just keep working together and listening. So the, the conversation has been largely very positive. Um, but yes, of course, as you also allude to, there is a there is a, um, an, a, a, a desire to understand, you know, where does the reward lie and, uh, and what's that going to look like? And what's the role of technology here in the future? I mean, it often gets presented as a silver bullet and then turns out not to be. But clearly, it's got to be vital here in terms of measurement and verification at scale. I wondered where you're at in, you know, what do you see happening on farms in two, five years' times in terms, five years' time in terms of the technology that will enable that measurement and verification? I think as as everything, you know. Um, it will be an aid to help farms. It won't be the total replacement of. I think we're still probably going to, some of the best practices are still coming out with a spade and digging down into that soil and understanding what's within the soil that you have on each of those farms. I think that's really important. And, you know, yes, of course, technology and LIDAR mapping, for example, the satellite technology can certainly help with understanding its scale. But um, as far as I understand at the moment um, can't get underneath the surface of soil to a very great depth and so perhaps that sort of combination of technology um, together with literally in the field assessment that is going to be really important um, but uh, but yes yeah, certainly I think technology will be um, very useful in helping to scale up countrywide assessments or regional assessments but uh, yeah as a, a potentially combination approach. And do you get lots of people claiming they've got the magic solution coming to you saying, Sophie, I've got this soil carbon sensor. All you need to do is plug it in on your farms and boom, it'll give you your footprint. Are you seeing an explosion of, of innovation there in terms of offerings and so on? I certainly need an explosion of um, of tools, yes. Um, and uh, I sort of go back to the, I suppose, the point of this webinar those tools are all saying different things so that makes it quite challenging you know I think uh, the NF National Farmers Union in the UK did a did a piece of work that sort of said there are 64 different carbon tools with 64 different readings and so you know that's uh, that is quite challenging so it's just trying to understand where are the areas of commonality that we can start to build and go forward on. Yes good point thank you very much um, we'll come back to lots of that loads of great questions in the chat I'm going to go through them in a minute but before we do uh, Ian is uh, graciously stayed up late for us in Australia, half past midnight you now, Ian, thanks for, for staying awake and for joining us uh, from there. Very keen to hear your views uh, based on your experience with, with Tyson and elsewhere. So, Ian, just give us a couple of lines on who you are and Tyson, and then really interested to hear your points of view. Thanks, Toby. Yeah, my, my role at Tyson is to lead sustainability inside our international business, so basically everything outside 
the United States, but work closely with a global sustainability team. And I also have the, the current privilege of sitting as the president of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef now for the next two years. So, and I should also cl clarify, for the last 10 years, I worked for WWF, uh, the Panda, as their global lead for livestock. So I've looked at these topics from a number of different angles for, for a fair while and spent a decade before that as an extension officer helping farmers adopt practices. So it's now really interesting to be in the corporate space in an organisation with bold ambitions around climate. We have a science-based target uh, headed towards 2030 and an ambition to be net zero by 2050. Uh, or well before 2050. So, you know, for us as a protein company that has such a large land footprint, soil carbon is going to have to be part of that balance. And the sheer challenge in measuring that um, in a timely manner, so it's actually reportable against our targets, is the number one challenge we face uh, right now. Um, and, I, and I should also preface my comments by saying, Living in Australia, where we have the Emissions Reduction Fund, which has effectively set strong guidelines and standards around soil carbon projects, we've seen that increase the confidence of people to invest in once they knew what rules were being set, once they knew they were going to have credits accepted uh, coming out of the system, the role of a standardised approach actually was not the limiting factor, it was the growth factor in enabling these projects to scale more quickly and to enable more people to come in and set the projects up. If, if that was to happen globally, we would then be able to invest more quickly and at scale in projects that deliver on our carbon targets. Now, we can go into the technical discussions around why that's really challenging. The, the differences in soil uh, around the world, the, the challenges around permanence, the challenges around definitions, but for me in the supply chain, those questions are best sorted out by bringing the experts together. And I think when that happens, consensus does occur. The secondary piece to that is how do we account for that? And how do we use a standardised approach in creating credits around the world that allows us to trade those through the supply chain? One of the biggest threats I see currently to the food system in this space is that we have to buy food in one market and carbon in another. And how do we instead tie the two together to enable us to recognise the work of farmers in the place where farmers are recognised by consumers, and that is when they purchase food. So being able to buy products with carbon balances attached to them also reduces the threat of leakage of carbon out of the agricultural system and, in fact, then being used as an offset for other sectors um, when potentially it should remain in the food system. So that, that's the, the biggest point, in addition to especially Sophie's um, points around um, you know, the technical challenges of, of actually being in a supply chain and where to go. Toby, your question to Sophie around, do you get lots of people coming to you with a solution? One of the big challenges we've, we've got, you know, and I notice this moving into the corporate space, is the amount of sales pitch emails I now get every day um, telling me there's an entrepreneurial solution to this ready to go. Because there's not a standardised approach, I don't know which horse to back in this race yet. Um, and potentially there's a lot of horses that we need to start testing and some standards around the outcomes of those projects and programs would certainly help us um, scale that investment more quickly uh, and in the right places.
But I'll leave it there and we'll get to the questions. Thanks. Yeah, quick question for me and I'll move to the Q&A. Um, what needs, what could not needs to happen then, uh, Ian, to, to take forward the ideas that we've been discussing here? Um, obviously, being at BSI could play a key role. We'd like to be involved. But, I mean, there are lots of other actors out there. I mean, you must have had conversations about, right, okay, we understand what what some of what we need to do. What would we like to happen next? Any views on that? I know it's a big question. It is a huge question. I Fundamental to a lot of these systems is traceability. So the continuous improvement of traceability so that we know where our products are coming from. Um, that enables us to apply more accurate models and solutions tailored to those regions. But especially when we start adding claims like a carbon credit to a product, the traceability is going to have to be absolute for that. So that, that's number one. Second, this, this technology investment, the, the flexibility over time to improve carbon measurement with technology is vital. But potentially, you know, the idea of having a perfect measurement with technology on day one doesn't need to be the goal. The, the current system that we, that's used here in Australia is that when accuracy lowers, the discount on the amount of carbon you can store as a credit, you, know, you, you apply a discount. So if you've got you know, a large amount of carbon measured in an inaccurate way, you may only be able to sell 10 to 20% of it uh, as a credit. Um, as accuracy grows, you're able to um, increase that. And that also hits a limit based on understandings of permanence in different types of soil, the agricultural system. But there's also a challenge in this space that um, in Australia, for example, a farmer can only be credited with a carbon store that comes from a change in practice. If what they're doing is current standard practice for them or the industry, then they're not actually sequestering additional carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, that's, that's the way the policy is written. Uh, and there's big debates around that, but there are fundamental questions as we deal with huge variations in carbon practices or farming practices around the world. And I see already in the Q&A questions about how this works for smallholder farmers. Some of those questions are going to be fundamental to how we apply credits in these different landscapes. Yeah, well, we did promise more questions than answers uh, on this webinar. We certainly got those, but of course, we can only answer them once we know what they are. So that's that's a very good point. That kind of additionality point of what gets counted. You know, there was a lot of controversy last year or year before when um, you know big NGOs were accused of selling carbon credits for forests that weren't going to be cut down anyway. Um, so the big question is, you know, what are we counting as value? Um, and this is key in, in this area too, as, as you mentioned, In Well, let's go to the Q&A. Uh, lots of them. I'm going to do them on ranking because there's just too many. So I'll start with uh, Adrian Greet's uh, easy question. Adrian, thanks for joining. Good to hear from you again. Um, Adrian asks, and I'm looking for a volunteer, by the way, to take this one on. I might just pick on Pear or, some, or, or David to, to answer this because they haven't said much for a while. Um, Adrian's asking, is soil carbon actually accepted and accounted for uh, as such in all standards of scope three? If not, who will set that and when? Uh, thanks for starting us off with a nice easy one there, Adrian. Um, who wants to volunteer to take that one on? Pear, can I ask you to, to offer a response to that? I know it's a difficult question. Okay, I, I, my, my understanding is that, that it is insufficiently recognized. And the reasons is, as Ian pointed out, that 
that there's too many open questions on what it actually is, where it goes, and, and you know, how can we account for it, and so on. So, so um, it, it is the, 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 the potential of agriculture to sequester carbon or, or active sequestering uh, is, is an, it's insufficiently accounted for, and, and moreover, it's accounted for differently in almost every different country. Um, but I want to use, I want to highlight that question to make a very quick segue on something that Ian just pointed out very quickly here is leakage. Uh, I think it, that there is a huge danger here that, that if, uh, if these accounting practices become compatible with everything else, that, that people then go to farmers or farming organizations or countries and say, hmm, uh, I, I estimate you have X, Y, Z of carbon sequestration going on here. Uh, can I buy all of that in order for me to be allowed to continue run my coal mine or my coal power station? And, and that's a huge threat to the sector. I, I, uh, I'm uh, personally uh, um, very, very skeptical of uh, leaking the, the carbons outside of the food system. Uh, because, and the, the reason is the food system is the most important economic sector that have, we have in the world. At the end of the day, we can live without airplanes. We can even live without this computer and the Zoom call, but we cannot live without three meals a day per day, all right? We cannot. So, so the food sector must be given all the tools to be, to be sustainable on its own right. Of course, the food sector needs to be sustainable, but it also needs to be given its tools to do so. And, and if we're now buying away all the carbon credits, uh, kind of, you know, so we're kind of overemphasizing, stealing it away from the sector and then say, oh, now you're not, you're not, not sustainable anymore, then, then we're, there's a potential for doing huge damage. So we have to be very, very careful. Again, what are we accounting for? How are we accounting this? And what are these things being used for? Uh, there, there is lots more open questions and good answers. Thank you. Unless someone on the panel wants to say something very briefly on this point, uh, I'm going to move on because we've got a lot to talk about. David, did you want to add anything? Yeah, just a very uh, a brief sort of um, postscript to that. I mean, within a, a standard that BSI was responsible for developing for Paris 2060 on carbon neutrality, I was just checking to make sure I was getting this right. There is a section at the end there which talks about you know, here are some examples of schemes that can provide carbon credits, and it gives some indicative examples that are international, global, regional, national, um, and it says, you know, others may apply as well. So that if the question was saying, to what extent are statements of carbon neutrality and soil uh, sequestration schemes, are they aligned within standards? That's an example where it's recognised that, uh, I mean, it specifically talks in the UK about the Woodland Carbon Code as being a, an example of, it's not saying it's the only one, an example of a domestic scheme that um, provides carbon credits. And therefore, if a business is uh, using PAS 2060 for supporting its statement of carbon neutrality, that could be an example that they may want to reference. I'm not sure if that's Adrian's answer that he needed, but um, it's kind of there if you look for it. Okay, thank you. Um, our next most popular question was from Gary, um, saying that plant and ag-based products are often given a negative slant when compared with petroleum solutions when using existing LCA models, or life cycle analysis models. What are your thoughts on this as an observation? Uh, how do we set the right boundaries 
make sure this gets calibrated with the service providers. So a, a technical but popular question. Does anybody want to take that one on with a response? Any volunteers from the panel? Not quite I just sure. jump in really quickly that anything in the land sector right now is effectively measured purely on their emissions because we don't have good standards to measure sequestration. So the, the reason, the pure reason groups, you know, um, petrochemical alternatives are given that advantage is because their emissions are lower than the emissions from land-based systems. If we add sequestration to it, we, we can start to balance that equation. I'll, I'll also quickly say that it may not be a silver bullet. There are certainly highly emitting land-based sectors, you know, the loss, conversion of forests, conversion of grasslands, et cetera, that do that. But there is an opportunity in sequestration to change that balance. And if we don't have standards that allow us to measure it, it'll stay that way. Thanks. Well, we'll move on. If no one has anything else they want to add, I see some nods there. Uh, Sophie, I don't know if you want to comment on this one initially, at least from Olivier Labri, who's uh, asking about uh, uh, organisations working with satellites to measure soil organic carbon and to calibrate these measurements with soil samples. Is this seen as an effective and reliable method? Um, and and if, you know, if so, or not, what else is out there? I know we sort of touched on this earlier, but I just wondered if you had any specific comments on, on the satellite side of things. Yeah, so um, so I certainly can't claim to be an expert in this particular area. It's why we work with some very good providers um, within uh, within Morrison's who can. Um, however, I think, you know, as we sort of alluded to before, a combination of measurements is going to sort of give a richer um, evaluation of the soils. And I do think it's a really, I've seen some really interesting work and particularly combining LIDAR mapping with sort of soils analysis, which I think is, is, is really um, quite promising. However, um, we've got to try and understand what's accessible and what's available to all farmers to be able to get behind now versus what might need more sort of um, public funding in potential interventions potentially because some of those things can be very expensive um, and indeed the satellite mapping and the satellite mapping I guess as well isn't they? the same as any other sort of method so it's about understanding the protocols and the and the standards that are going behind each of those different measurements to ensure that there is sufficient rigor and sufficiently um, solid approach that's going into into that combination um, to uh, to give um, the farmer the, as the end user faith in the result and uh, and a clear direction about where to go next. Thank you. Very helpful. Um, I'm going to move through these because there's quite a few of them. Next most popular at the moment in the ranking is from Brian Cohen um, on smallholders. I mean, in, in a nutshell, he says, how do we get smallholder farmers to participate in carbon credit uh, or generation schemes? I mean, that is um, a question which has been asked many, many times uh, across different fora. Um, and of course, it is very challenging The the standardization of measurement is going to be absolutely key to this. Um, but uh, clearly the cost uh, is a factor. So, Pear, let me ask you if you want to come in on that. I saw you raise your hand. Yeah, I, I, I want to comment on that because uh, my, my simple answer is you don't. Uh, smallholder farming uh, has, has enough challenges the way it is. And we're not going to be able to, if, if, if we divert the smallholder's farmer attention uh, towards all these uh, 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 highly cumbersome accounting and measurement and, and bureaucratic things, we take too much attention away from that farmer. 
that he should better invest into the health of his soils, the health of his plants, the health of his animals, and for that matter, the health of his family and, 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 and his business. It is just simply too cumbersome. So uh, any solution that we think we would be baking down to the level of the smallholder farms is almost certainly a wrong investment of the human capital of that uh, smallholder farmer. So we, we, with regard to smallholder farmers, we're going to have to get to schemes that, that work on organizational levels above the farmer, uh, let's say cooperatives or whatever you can think of. But we have to be also keenly aware here of the investments of human capital and social capital uh, and financial capital that are required in, in order to do these right. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Pat. Um, we published a report about a year and a half ago on smallholder resilience by Dr. Peter Stanbury. Did about 80 interviews, complete literature review, um, but lots of lots of interviews with those on the ground. And it only backs up what you've just said. I mean, they've got so much else to do and there is so much else to do already. I mean, not least looking at inefficiencies in the onward supply chain, which is barely touched. Um, that, yeah, um, it really does. The, our conclusions were very similar. That it really needs to be with larger groups because part of the problem is that many farms are getting smaller, not larger, you know, with inheritance laws and so on. So good points. Uh, we publish a lot, a lot on this. So if you want to keep up the conversation on smallholders, uh, Innovation Forum regularly publishes uh, articles and podcasts and webinars on that subject and conferences too. So um, we will continue that debate uh, over the course of the year elsewhere. Let's just have a quick look at the, the ranking of questions. It's fast moving here. Um, we do have a good question from Sajeev, uh, which has been here for a while. What are the panel's thoughts on the yet to be released GHG protocol land sector and removals guidance? Now, that sounds like a very important piece of work. Uh, I am as yet unfamiliar with the detail of it myself, but I wonder if any of you uh, have anything you'd like to share on that. Not yet. <laughs> okay, let's ask that question in six months, Ajeev, I think is what we're saying. <laughs> let's, uh, we've got a few good responses on there anyway from Robin and John, so hopefully that offers some sort of uh, insight. Um, Jake Richards cuts to the chase. Thank you, Jake. Uh, this was really going to be part of the end of the webinar. And we're, we're getting there anyway. So it's a good time to drop this in. Jake says, in your opinions, who should develop and set the standards and how should they be signed up to? You know, is it government certification? And I think, David, in your earlier remarks, I'll come to you first. You know, you're pointing out that groups like BSI can be there to catalyze that initial stage work and get it spread out around the world uh, and set those values and principles so that we don't get that dilution. So let me uh, let me ask you if you'd like to comment further on that, David. You're on mute. Question myself. Okay, yeah. So I think both reading it, you were saying it. So he was really asking whether it should be government, whether it should be certification bodies, or who. And I think your question was your answer is probably my one, which is actually it's got to be a combination of all of those, all those interested parties, which includes, you know, landowners and, and obviously, you know, academics. I mean, that's really the model that certainly BSI um, and ISO, for example, would champion, which got to be a, a kind of a, a kind of brains trust of, of those that can actually solve the problem rather than if it comes, I suppose, from one end of that of that spectrum, then it might it might run the risk of of um you know tail wagging dog i think it needs to be a collective effort um and, and i as i said beforehand i mean you know um bsi is a, a uk um 
standards body, but also a member of ISO, is in a very good position to perhaps act in that convening role and then um, drive that, that, that model of standardization into ISO. And the other benefit of the ISO um, uh, structure is the fact that ISO standards are, um, there are what we often call kind of real economy standards. Therefore, a business, say like Morrison's, might well be using an ISO standard for managing environmental risk, for managing energy management, for um, quantif- uh, you know, addressing waste. And therefore, if they're using ISO standards for that, and there's an ISO standard that also is there to quantify um, soil carbon, the, the, the structure of those standards, often the definitions that are used, cut across each other. So that's that, there's a benefit there of, of what happens through a conversation like this becoming globalized through ISO because it, it can connect into, as I say, those real economy standards that, that you know, uh, businesses like Morrison's and, and Tyson's are using as well. Thank you, David. Probably time for one more question before I ask you all to offer some concluding comments on uh, your takeaways from this webinar and also what you'd like to see happen next to further this idea of standardization so get ready for your closing remarks panel but before that louise horson has an excellent question um she says should we be wary of a focus on soil carbon rather than soil health or biology in supply chains or government policy we have obviously discussed this to a certain degree already at the beginning of the, the webinar do we run the risk she says of driving the wrong kinds of actions on farms uh, the dreaded unintended consequences uh, of policy which we've seen happen uh, in many places elsewhere um, she references um, companies buying buying land and tree planting and all that kind of thing so we do have to be careful that the thing we create doesn't become the thing we go after at the exclusion of other important elements uh Ped, do you want to comment on that i know that you made some remarks in that area at the beginning of the webinar let's see who else wants to comment after you well, I'll, I'll combine that actually with my closing statement, if you don't mind. And I, I completely share that concern. I think uh, if, if we don't do this right, we might be creating uh, things that with, with very unintended consequences that turn out to be negative. The ultimate target should not be soil carbon. The ultimate target should be soil health. And soil carbon is just one component of soil health. Um, and there's already practices that, that concern farmers and observers of farmers very much where people are sort of trying to force carbon into the soil because they get credits for that, but in the, in the process wrecking the soil health. And, and that's stuff that we don't want. So um, I'm, I'll, I, when we kind of, we're talking about standards. So when, when I'm trying to measure the health of an organism, because our soil is really an organism, it, 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 is, it is an organism. And if I measure the health of an organism, um, I want to use particular tools. So for instance, I want to use a thermometer to be able to measure whether a human body has the required 37.3 degrees centigrade. And it would be really helpful to agree that uh, we want to, uh, that we want to express whether we have the right temperature or not in centigrade. Or if we use Fahrenheit or if we use Kelvin that we know how to, how to translate Kelvin and Fahrenheit into centigrade back and forth. But it would really be good that we, that we agree on how we want to express that. But then we, we shouldn't be saying a healthy body always has 37.3. That could be depending on kinds of things and different organisms have maybe different temperatures. So when we talk about what is the right standard, 
the right standard is the one that tells us, okay, as far as measuring temperature, use centigrade. And then on top of that, we should also be humble enough to say that that is not the only parameter by which we can establish health because there's other parameters that we also want to measure, right? So, so um, and, and kind of coming back to the questions, question uh, that was raised, we are here already at the danger of setting a standard or a, an almost like a popular standard. Okay, 37.3 equals health. Who, who says that? You know, that, that's not what we want. We, we want. we want proper descriptions recognizing the complexity we're dealing with rather than simple definitions that, that lead us down the path of non-intended consequences. Okay, great, thank you. Um, we are gonna run a couple of minutes over the hour while I ask our panel uh, to, to offer further conclusions. So um, hope that's okay with everyone. Ian, um, comments on this last point or overall? Overall, I, I think soil carbon is a unique opportunity because while there may be a few cases that, that pair outlines, the overwhelming correlation between soil carbon and its outcomes for soil health and positive food production are really high. So by chasing soil carbon, as opposed to other sequestration methods, you know, forestry, for example, that can be at odds with food production, I think we provide an opportunity to actually change practice for the better that leads to a whole range of positive trade-offs. Certainly within the, the pasture base and grazing sector that I'm most familiar. What I'd love to see next is a linking of work in the soil carbon methodologies and accounting back to the supply chain and the ESG governance frameworks like SBTI, the GHG protocol, so that we're all playing the same game. Currently, there's a lots of really good games of tennis happening, but they're all on different courts and bringing them together so that we're actually trying to achieve the same outcomes. Uh, and that also goes for the nationally determined contributions for governments as well and their involvement uh, in these credits. So um, if this system helps bring together and add richness and the, the complexity that's needed um, to groups like the SPTI flag guidance, the GHG protocol, who have called out sequestration platforms but not provided the specifics, this kind of work may enable that and would be hugely important if so. Thank you, Ian. And just on the point about soil carbon versus soil health, uh, you know, should, should we be calling it soil health or does that make it too confusing from a kind of measurement point of view in your to you? Uh, I'm still of the belief we need to decarbonize our economy and there needs to be a focus on that. So um, we do need to measure the carbon, um, but policy should be in place, not only as responsible companies, but particularly, um, you know, local governments and, and national governments should ensure that there's policies in place that mean that there's not negative trade-offs, especially in places where food security and um, agricultural production is closely linked to poverty reduction. Thank you. Sophie, concluding remarks or thoughts? Yes, thank you very much. So, yeah, really interesting uh, discussion. So, I mean, ultimately for us as a, as a retailer, a supermarket, you know, we buy food to sell to customers in its simplest form. Um, and uh, and we want to be able to sort of ensure that that food is grown in harmony, really, with the planet, um, you know, thinking about animal welfare, thinking about human health and nutrition and um, that holistic model and I think uh, it is really important again not to sort of race down only a one um, a one uh, 
method uh, analysis. Um, and so I would just be very keen that we have those systems and standards to agree that language and consistency, but also allow for pace and innovation, because we also know that the food and agriculture industry is hugely entrepreneurial and innovative, and we need to give them enough space or give actors and that's in the industry enough space to be able to innovate and develop um, the opportunity that is within food production for the future. Uh, but yes, I agree with a lot of the points that Ian's just made there, um, thinking about that linking approach and how to bring, um, you know, different uh, countries together in a, in a common way and a common way and understanding. And that certainly, again, going back to a retailer, makes complex supply chains much easier to sort of manage, govern and, and, uh, and consider when there is an element of that standardisation. Thank you very much, Sophie. David, let me give the final word to you. And if we could perhaps focus on you know, the practical steps we could take to try and make this happen, you know, perhaps some sort of white paper or roadmap based on some of this feedback and else out, and what else is out there could help take this idea forward. Yeah, sure. No, thanks, Toby. I mean, I think um, Pierce at the beginning, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a, an issue where you can keep it simple and get, get the outcomes you want because it's so complex. I think we, having said that, we recognise that standards can help demystify that complexity. So I think there's definitely a role for um, standards. We've all agreed that. I think there's a role for, and Sophie mentioned about the flexibility. They, yeah, it, it can't be just pass-fail, yes-no criteria. It needs to be almost a hierarchy of principles and practices. And then at the bottom of that hierarchy, maybe the different products and services that, that businesses are offering, and therefore they can plug into that um, and, and be almost like Russian dolls, if I can say that. You're all of a similar kind of um, uh, uh, sort of structure, but actually having that kind of common sort of uh, common features. Um, in terms of what happens next, yeah, it's it, it, I think a standards body like BSI working with an organisation like Innovation Forum is very well placed to, to, to shape something which becomes a bit of a state of the nation in terms of where are we and, and where can we go with this. We do standards roadmaps working often with UK government when we're trying to support what their ambition is in terms of scaling up a sector so it can grow with confidence. And I think that's something similar um, maybe is needed here, So, but more on a global scale. So I think that's, a, that's probably a good outcome. We could probably work, I guess, with you and with other partners on this call to try and yeah, distill all of the, the issues into something which points to a, a solutions roadmap. Thanks, David. Yeah, we'd be keen to do that with you. Um, thanks to all of you for a fascinating last uh, 65 minutes. I know we've run a few minutes over, but I think you'll agree it's worth it. Uh, we will be in touch with you all. Uh, we're going to send you a link to this recording so you can get the audio version. Uh, and please do share it and get in touch with us if you'd like to continue the conversation. We'll be doing that over the course of this year through our research, through our events, through our podcasts um, and our sort of face-to-face and uh, on online conferences that take place around food landscapes and commodities later this year so thanks so much for, to all of you for your time and your interest in taking part and particularly to ian for now staying up at uh, past one in the morning so let's let ian get to bed um and the rest of you back to work and we shall uh, be in touch soon so once again thank you all very much <laughs>